Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Holly, have you ever been on streptomycin? I don't know. I don't really either. I mean, I've certainly taken my fair share of antibiotics, but... Yeah, streptomycin was a, a pretty groundbreaking one. Um, it still has lots of uses, and the person who usually gets the credit for its invention is a guy named Selman Waxman. Uh, he's a bacteriologist who published more than 400 scientific papers. He wrote or co-wrote 18 books, and he and his students and colleagues isolated lots of new antibiotics in the 1940s. These included streptomycin and neomycin. Those are the two most well-known of the ones that actually got some practical use. Uh, some of the others did not have practical uses. Uh, and all of this earned him the nickname Father of Antibiotics. He won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 1952, along with uh, more than 60 other awards and 22 honorary degrees. But there is some dispute about whether he actually deserves the credit for having uh, discovered streptomycin. So today we're going to talk about his life and his background and the whole streptomycin controversy. Cool. We should probably start at the beginning, though, right? Let's do. So... Selman Abraham Waxman was born on July 22nd of 1888 near Kiev in what is now Ukraine. His parents were Jacob Waxman and Fradia London Waxman. His father rented out houses that he owned and his mother ran a dry goods business. He also had a little sister who died of diphtheria when she was very young. The whole family were devout Jews. Waxman had a philanthropic disposition, and he and some friends organized a school for poor boys, as well as caring for the sick. His education started at a Jewish religious school, and his mother was worried that focusing only on religious study would limit his potential in the future. So she also hired private tutors to educate him in other areas. In 1910, he got a diploma from the 5th Gymnasium in Odessa. As a Jew, he didn't have a lot of opportunities for higher education within the Russian Empire. His mother had also passed away not long before his graduation, and many of his family had already moved to the United States to escape persecution. So he decided to emigrate as well, uh, and he stayed with a cousin who had a farm in New Jersey. He started college at Rutgers on a scholarship in the fall of 1911, And he got a Bachelor of Science in Agriculture there in 1915. He went on to work on a master's degree at Rutgers. And while there, he worked as a research assistant in soil bacteriology at the New Jersey Agriculture Experiment Station. In 1916, he received his master's and became a U.S. citizen officially. That year, he also married Deborah B. Mitnick, who was an artist and vocalist who was from the same part of Russia where he had grown up. They later had a son named Byron who went on to become an immunologist and to teach at Harvard and Yale. Waxman went on to get additional education. He received his Ph.D. in biochemistry from the University of California at Berkeley in 1918. After Waxman graduated, Dr. J.G. Lippmann, who he'd worked for as a research assistant while working on his master's, invited him to come back to Rutgers. He started as a lecturer and worked his way up in the university, focusing most of his research on soil microbes. He became professor of microbiology and head of the microbiology department when it was founded in 1940. 
When Rutgers established an institute of microbiology in 1949, he became its director. And when he retired in 1958, he actually kept a lab and office at the institute and continued to do some work there, although he really spent much more of his time writing and giving lectures. In addition to all his work on soil bacteriology, he also worked in marine bacteriology. He helped organize the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution's Division of Marine Bacteriology in the 30s. His work there continued until the early 40s, and from there he became a trustee. And of course, what he is most famous for, he developed a bunch of antibiotics. Dr. Waxman's master's and Ph.D. work had focused on bacteria known as actinomycetes. These are anaerobic microbes that live in the soil. They use branching filaments to create these colonies or mycelia. So they resemble bacteria in their size and their physiology. But this filament structure is more like what you'd think of with a fungus. While most of the actinomycetes are harmless, some of them can carry disease and others can produce antibiotics. In 1927, René Dubois, a French biologist, joined Dr. Waxman's lab, and he was studying the interactions between organisms in the soil and the way cellulose broke down. In this process, he actually pinpointed a bacterium that attacks Streptococcus pneumonia, which, as the name suggests, causes pneumonia. And this inspired Dr. Waxman and his colleagues to look for other soil microorganisms that could fight against pathogens. And this is a pretty logical leap. Lots of bacteria in the soil are competing for a limited amount of real estate and food. So logically, they need to be able to compete with each other and defend themselves and attack each other. So working with a grad student named H. Boyd Woodruff, Dr. Waxman started systematically looking for antimicrobial activity in soils. And what they would do is isolate these colonies of specific microbes from the soil, and then they would culture those colonies in a Petri dish and then expose them to other microbes to see if inhibition zones formed around the colonies, which in my head is like a bacterial version of robot battles. Kind of. (laughs) They just kind of were like, let's grow this one and this one, put them together and fight, fight, fight. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's sort of like what it was, <laughs> except that robot battles are exciting. <laughs> this is kind of a slow burn. <laughs> this is tedious, painstaking work. Uh, they had to isolate thousands of different microbes, grow colonies of them, and then test them against specific disease-causing bacteria in a Petri dish. This was just a, it was a very labor-intensive, delicate work that had to be done very precisely so you didn't contaminate things. And over the years, more than 50 graduate students and visiting scholars took part in this project. They were really taking a shotgun approach to getting lots of bacteria from the soil and seeing what they did. So they needed lots of people to carry out these instructions and do the actual things. So once they had isolated a particular bacterium and found it to have some kind of beneficial activity, they then had to work out how to further isolate just the antimicrobial compound it produced. This could involve everything from solvents to very precise temperature controls. The first such bacterium that Woodruff isolated was named Actinomyces antibioticus. This was a species of Actinomyces that produced a substance that could both kill and inhibit the growth of bacteria. So it was both bacteriostatic and bactericidal. He called this substance actinomycin, and he discovered that you could use petroleum to separate it into two distinct substances. One killed bacteria and halted its growth, and the other simply killed it. So it was pretty cool. Yeah. This was able to kill some bad bacteria. 
But unfortunately, actinomycin was super toxic to other living things, not just bacteria. So it didn't really have any sort of pharmacological benefit at that point. But Dr. Waxman didn't give up there. He went on systematically testing various actinomycetes, looking for ones that produced antibiotic substances that weren't so toxic to the plants or animals that needed to fight off infection. And a lot of this work happened through lots of assistants and graduate students and lab techs and those types of people doing the actual work based on this idea. Yeah, because as you said, it was a shotgun approach. They were looking at lots of different things. Everything needed attention and things to be done to it. One person could not have handled all of that no. lab work. Uh, so two years later, Woodruff isolated uh, streptothricin, which looked more promising than actinomycin, but it turned out it was still toxic. Uh, the toxicity just took a little while to kick in, so it wasn't immediately apparent that it was toxic. It was a delayed response. Eventually, Dr. Waxman, his grad students, and his colleagues found more than 20 bacteria-produced substances that could fight infections. He also suggested the term antibiotics, which had first been used as early as 1891, as a name for this growing class of antimicrobial agents. And of course, in the midst of all of this, a controversy kind of grew out. Right. Uh, in 1944 came the discovery that had the most impact on human health, and that was streptomycin. Streptomycin was active against tuberculosis, and it was the first antibiotic to successfully treat the disease. So that was huge. Tuberculosis had existed for basically all of human history. Uh, in 1921, a vaccine had been developed in France using a bovine strain of tuberculosis that wasn't as virulent. But before streptomycin, there was really no effective treatment for people who got it. In the 19th century, tuberculosis was responsible for as many as a quarter of the deaths in Europe. And it often struck people who were otherwise pretty young and healthy. All three Bronte sisters, John Keats, Frederick Chopin, Franz Kafka, and many other notable people died of tuberculosis. Uh, when you read about somebody dying of consumption, tuberculosis is what they're talking about. And as a side note, my grandmother actually had tuberculosis and spent part of her childhood in a tuberculosis sanatorium recovering. I don't want to say that's cool, because it's not, but it's neat historical reference point to have. Yeah, it's a personal historical reference point I have to this particular story. So that made the discovery of streptomycin extremely important. It was also very important because World War II was underway, and the military desperately needed more tools to fight infection. But Dr. Waxman wasn't actually the person who isolated Streptomyces griseus, which was the bacterium that produced Streptomycin. That distinction goes to another of Dr. Waxman's grad students, Albert Schatz, who was listed as co-author on the first paper about S. griseus. Here's how Streptomyces griseus went from a bacterium to a drug. In 1939, Merck and company had contacted Dr. Waxman with a proposal Dr. Waxman and his researchers would carry on methodically identifying antimicrobial activity in soil. And then Merck would pick up the follow-up and research and development that would be needed to turn these discoveries into actual marketable drugs. Merck would do uh, all the efficacy and safety tests, uh, the kind of stuff that, that Dr. Waxman and his team couldn't really do. And Merck would give, as part of this arrangement, Dr. Waxman and his team uh, acknowledgement and any, any patents that it obtained for the drugs. In return, Rutgers would get a percentage of the royalties from the sale of the drug. And this was meant to be an exclusive agreement 
between Merck and Rutgers slash Dr. Waxman. And thanks to this agreement, when Albert Schatz isolated Streptomyces griseus, Merck was able to supply the Mayo Clinic with enough streptomycin for the necessary trials. By 1945, with the help of Mayo Clinic doctors William Feldman and H. Corwin Henshaw, streptomycin had made its way through animal trials and into clinical trials. In the process, it was proved to be effective against typhoid fever, bubonic plague, cholera, and others, in addition to TB. It was a broad-spectrum antibiotic, effective on both gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria, and that made it pretty much a groundbreaking wonder drug. Yeah. It was such a success that Dr. Waxman was no longer comfortable with his original exclusive agreement with Merck. The need for the drug was too great, so he renegotiated their deal to have the patent assigned to Rutgers and licensed to Merck and other manufacturers. And for that, Rutgers would receive a royalty. So he basically just wanted it to be produced in great volume as quickly as possible for as many people as possible. This patent was granted in 1948. Under the new deal with Merck, 80% of the royalties on the drug's manufacture would go to Rutgers and 20% would go to Dr. Waxman. The university used this money to fund its Institute of Microbiology and set up an endowment for the Institute. Dr. Waxman shared some of the money that came to him personally with the assistants and students who had worked on the patent with him. He also established a foundation for microbiology to support microbiological research with half of the 20% of the royalties that came to him. And he also set up a scholarship for immigrant students at Rutgers. His wife also established a music scholarship at Rutgers. So from that one discovery, a lot of benefit happened to a lot of people. Right. Apart from the medical benefit, there was a lot of, of educational benefit for a lot of people. In 1949, Albert Schatz, who's the person who had identified the two strains of bacteria that made streptomycin, sued Dr. Waxman. His argument was that streptomycin existed only because of his initial discovery and that Dr. Waxman had stopped acknowledging his contribution, keeping all of the credit for himself. Dr. Waxman's counterargument was that Schatz was working as an assistant on his project using his methodology which had previously identified many other bacteria that produced antimicrobial compounds. So in Waxman's view, Schatz was basically a technician carrying out his project based on his idea. According to Peter Pringle, who is the author of the book Experiment 11, Dark Secrets Behind the Discovery of a Wonder Drug, which chronicles the discovery and subsequent lawsuit, Dr. Waxman's defense team made all kinds of specious accusations against Schatz, including false accusations that his uncle had stolen his notebooks in the lab and removed crucial papers before returning them. Pringle's account characterizes Dr. Waxman as a self-aggrandizing bully who made his lab assistants do grunt work with no credit while he got all the glory and bilked everybody who contributed to the project out of the money that they were entitled to from the royalties. He also characterizes the allegation of the stolen notebooks as false. The papers were actually somewhere else entirely due to the patent filings that were going on at the time. And the missing page, which there was really a missing page, was much later in the experiment than the point where Schatz had isolated the bacterium that gets the credit for making streptomycin. But Roland D. Hotchkiss, writing for the National Academy of Sciences, characterizes Dr. Waxman as a philanthropic man whose pride was tempered with modesty and whose colleagues viewed him with admiration and really warm respect. 
The case between Schatz and Waxman went on for a year and was settled in 1950. In the settlement of the 20% of the royalties that were not going to Rutgers, Waxman would get 10%, Schatz would get 3%, and the other people who had participated in the project would split up the remaining 7%. The Nobel Prize in 1952 went to Dr. Waxman only, although the award speech also referenced Schatz, the Mayo Clinic doctors who conducted the trials on the drug, and others who had participated in the research. Some of the Schatz supporters petitioned the Nobel Committee to give the prize to Schatz as well, but in the end, the prize went only to Dr. Waxman. This was really a common practice at the time. The Nobel Committee generally uh, would recognize the senior scientist on a project um, and not more junior scientists or assistants who had help with it. But Scientific American has this event listed as one of history's 10 biggest Nobel snubs. A 2002 article in Nature described the Schatz-Waxman incident as an example of the misattribution of scientific discovery uh, as being widespread in the world of science. In response to this Nature article, writing in the Journal of the History of Medicine and Allied Sciences, William Kingston described Schatz's discovery as a matter of luck. Because of the systematic way that Dr. Waxman was having his assistants work, It could have been any one of them to isolate the bacterium that led to streptomycin. This actually led to some back and forth in the letters to the editor, in which Kingston goes up against Milton Wainwright, author of Miracle Cure, the story of penicillin in the golden age of antibiotics. The back and forth is basically, nuh-uh. <laughs> I see it this way. I see it this way. Yeah, there's nuh-uh on both sides. So clearly this argument is really far from over. And both people who were the key players in it have died. Dr. Waxman died on August 16th, 1973. And uh, Albert Schatz, who did go on to become a doctor and have a career in science, died on January 17th, 2005. The lab where all this happened, which is Martin Hall on the campus at Rutgers, was actually turned into a museum to the development of antibiotics at the university. On May 24th, 2005, the American Chemical Society named... Uh, the lab, a National Historic Chemical Landmark, and installed a plaque commemorating it on the Cook campus. So the debate rages on, but we still recognize it as a very important place and discovery. The debate, yeah, and I, after having done the research, I cannot decide how I really feel about the debate. Like, Albert Schatz was clearly very upset and felt like he was working at just crazy long hours in a lab bent on finding a cure for tuberculosis, which clearly was true. That's sort of what being a graduate assistant is like a yeah. lot of the time. Um, but it's hard to to substantiate some of the claims that he makes about Dr. Waxman. Like, he, he claims that Dr. Waxman was not really about finding a cure for tuberculosis and was deathly afraid of tuberculosis and didn't want to have it in the lab. Uh, I'm not really sure how we can back that up. Yeah. Without going through. Well, and the characterizations made of Dr. Waxman seem counter to what all of his colleagues felt about him. Yeah. So, but then we're still going on a, this person said, this person said, this person said thing. You can't really. Yeah. It's a, it's quantify very, that scientifically. There's some level of he said, he said about it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, both of the he's are deceased. Yeah. At this point. Uh, but it's just unquestionable how important that discovery was, regardless of who ultimately should get the most credit for it. And it sounds like a lot of the money ended up really going to... Yeah, the bulk of the money went directly back into education and into... And neither of these people, so it's kind right. of an interesting fight to be having. Yeah. Yeah. 
you like to take a moment to talk about stamps.com? Absolutely. So you know what I did this weekend? I shudder to think. I went to the post office because I was accompanying another person there. Well, what? You know what happened to the post office? Uh, you had to wait forever. No, was that, no. Well, yeah, that's not the point. Uh, everything turned out to be more expensive than we were planning. All oh, the, that's no good. Yeah, all the little things added up way too fast. You know, I was not the person. I was just a, a hanger-on at the post office. I was not the one that was doing any of this post office nonsense. But all the things added up, which, when you're trying to make some money with your small business, is just not how you want things to go. No surprise expenses do not help your bottom line. No, even when they're little, even when it is $2, that is... That's really, it's going to add up. It's going to impact what you're doing. So it's really important to save money anywhere you can. And the good news is stamps.com makes it easy to save both time and money, keeping things running smoothly and not, you know, saving you some more money. With stamps.com, you can get official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. You don't need to get one of those expensive postage meters because Stamps.com offers more features than one of those does and at a fraction of the cost. There are no hidden fees, no long-term meter commitments, and you can save up to 80% compared to what you would spend on a meter. Plus, you'll never have to go to the post office ever again. So on top of all of that, Stamps.com offers special postage discounts that you can't even get at the post office. So right now, you can use our promo code, which is STUFF, for this special offer. That includes a no-risk trial, plus a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 of free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in STUFF. That's Stamps.com, and enter STUFF. Do you also have listener mail? I do. Uh, This listener mail is from Doug. It's about our episode on Robin Hood. Doug says, I enjoyed listening to your podcast on the origins of Robin Hood. One area you didn't cover was the possible folkloric origins of Robin Hood and his associations with the Green Man. The Green Man is a figure that appears in decorations, particularly churches throughout Europe. He's usually depicted as a face peering from the greenery, often with the foliage uh, appearing from his mouth. Here's a good example. He sends a link to it. His origins are a mystery, but he appears to be a holdover from paganism that got co-opted by the Christian church, in the same way that churches are often cited on pagan sites of worship. In England, at least, he's generally associated with churches dedicated to certain saints, particularly Mary. He's probably worth a podcast by himself. Robin Hood has been associated with the Green Man, uh, variously as the Green Man himself, as an aspect or as an attendant spirit. They've both been associated with the May Games and connected to Mary. Disentangling the who, what, where, and how is a hopeless task, but it's worth consideration alongside the purely historical possibilities. This connection has been touched on in one of the movies, the 1991 Robin Hood with Patrick Bergen and Uma Thurman, which you might enjoy more than the Kevin Costner version. I can attest that that is true. I like the Patrick Bergen version much better. As a side note, the death of Robin Hood, where he fires an arrow and is buried where the arrow lands, echoes the story of the giant Piers Shonks, a story local to my mother's area of Hertfordshire. Robin Hood doesn't have an outraged devil after him, though. Doug. So thank you so much, Doug, for writing this letter. Um, you are very right in the part about separating out uh, or, you know, disentangling all this would be a hopeless task. And that's the reason that I didn't get into it in the episode. 
Well, because it, he mentions it too. It really, there's so much myth and lore around Green Man that yeah, it it can be its own. I went down a Green Man <laughs> Robin Hole, Robin Hole. I went down a Green Man Robin Hood Rabbit Hole uh, for a while while researching the podcast. And once I fought my way back out of it, I was like, I just need to not get into this. It's going to be a long digression. That's going to be more speculation than anything else. So that is something that a couple of scholars, especially med- medievalists, who uh, have written about lots of different parts of medieval culture that span religion and folklore have kind of pointed out that there like there are churches where uh, there's lots of green man imagery in the church and that's also where some of the first Robin Hood plays were staged but like so there's connections but a lot of them are pretty speculative and we don't know what quite where they came from so the whole podcast was already really speculative. It's all dotted lines at that and point. And then I was like, here's even more speculation. So that's why we did not really uh, dive into the green man part of Robin Hood. But that is something that you can find some information about if you don't mind getting in the weeds on it for a bit. And it could one day become another podcast on its own. Yes. So thank you very much for writing to us about that, Doug. If you would like to write to us about this or any other episode or topic, you may. We are at historypodcast.discovery.com. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History and on Facebook at facebook.com slash historyclassstuff. You can find us on Tumblr at mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and we are on Pinterest, too. If you would like to learn more about what we've talked about today, you can put the word antibiotics in our search bar. You will find an article about how bacteria become resistant to antibiotics. You can learn all of that and a whole lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has more than 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash history to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today.